If you are planning on sitting for the upcoming Pediatric Emergency Medicine Board Examination in 2023, we have two great resources brought to you by our colleagues at Children's Health Dallas in conjunction with MedChallenge Corporation. The first resource is the new updated 2022 edition of the PEMQ book. This book contains thousands of board review questions with detailed answers and explanations. New added chapters in the latest edition include research, methodology, and epidemiology, emergency medical services, ultrasound, administration and legal, and much more. I actually used this book to prepare for my most recent board recertification and found it to be an invaluable resource. The second Pediatric Emergency Medicine Board Review resource is truly spectacular. Our colleagues at Children's Health Dallas are putting on a virtual Pediatric Emergency Medicine QBook Board Review course. It is a totally virtual conference and it starts soon. The first date is December 9th, 2022. Additionally, there'll be three additional days in January, February, and March, all virtual. The course is guaranteed. They have a don't pass, don't pay guarantee. And the last course they held had a 96% pass rate. So mark down this website to go on to sign up for both of these resources, the PEMQ book and the PEMQ book board review course, which is starting on December 9th, 2022. Go to www.pemqbook, that is P-E-M-Q-Book.com, P-E-M-Q-Book.com. Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. The topic today is head trauma, and we are joined by two superb clinicians and researchers. First, Nate Cooperman from UC Davis. Nate, this is your second appearance on the podcast. You and your wife appeared a few months ago when we talked about DKA. So welcome, Nate. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. And Pete, Peter Diane from Columbia University. This is your first time on the podcast. Pete, welcome. But you and I, Pete, go back a little ways. Pete and I did residency together at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Pete, a lot of fond memories from those days. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. I, my, I won't even discuss the my memories of you as the chief resident. We'll just leave it alone as good colleagues. All right, Pete. Thank you. Uh, we are going to open up the conversation with a landmark study that the two of you were lead authors in. But before we get to that landmark study, I want to ask both of you, think of another landmark study in pediatric emergency medicine and share that with our listening audience. Nate, how about you? Okay, well, of course, what I would say is our DKA randomized trial of fluids and DKA, which of course I, um, I podcast with you, but I can't do that because we already talked about that one. So I would say a constellation of three articles that were the same, that were one done in uh, PCARN, one done in the PREDICT network in Australia, and one done in the UK, randomized trial of second-line therapy for status epilepticus in children that all came to the same conclusion. Very powerful to have three big networks. And that was that basically, well, we don't need to go through the the results, but uh, those were uh, landmark studies. 
Great, Nate. Thank you. And again, thanks for plugging our prior podcast on status epilepticus, where we hosted Dr. Jim Chamberlain, who is the author of many of those studies. Pete, uh, another landmark study in, in our field of pediatric emergency medicine. I'm kind of going along with Nate. That it's hard to pick one in in certain areas, but I think that the area that's been near and dear to my heart has been febrile babies and the management of it. And it's funny, the first article I think of when you say landmark is actually goes back to 1990, Nate, what is it, about 1993, the, there was a study out of CHOP that was saying, okay, it's here's a safe point. You can start sending febrile babies home. That to me was a turning point in the care of those kids. And now you kind of move it up 30 years and you have the PCARN febrile infant prediction rule that Nate led, the step-by-step rule by our colleagues in Europe. I mean, these are these are really we've progressed from 1993 to today, but really it was 1993 was that starting point landmark. And I think we've kind of moved it up to present. Great. Thanks, Pete. Now, both of you guys are humble, but remember the study that you are the co-authors on, head trauma study, is also considered a landmark study. When we talk about head trauma in the emergency department, because of the work the two of you and your colleagues published, I think of soccer greats known by one name, such as Ronaldo, Messi, Pele, Neymar. You guys have any idea where I'm going with this? I just want to be Pele. I don't really know where you're going with it. Yeah, by okay. the way, you notice these are all my countrymen. They're all from Brazil, mostly. Right. So they all resonate. But I'm all not right. sure a lot of going with this. A lot of people can't understand how I think. But let me tell you, when we see a child with a head injury or head trauma in ER, what's the first thing we say? Did they meet Picarn? Did they meet Picarn? So it's one word. You guys are one word. Picarn. Nate, what is Picarn? Give us give us a brief summary. What is Picarn? Yeah, uh, just a brief summary. That's that's funny. By the way, let me just say, Bob, it's funny about that because, of course, you know, Peter and I would like to think Picarn. You know, we published nearly two hundred articles, but when people say Picarn, they are referring to the head injury rule. Uh, but what it stands for is the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. It's the first and only federally funded collaborative research network in the United States. We started in 2001 uh, with, uh, it's been funded continuously by HRSA EMSC, the infrastructure. Uh, since that time, PCARN has, we've garnered more than $150 million in research money. On top of that, published nearly 200 articles, big observational studies, randomized trials, and translational studies. Awesome, Nate. Thank you for that summary. Pete, uh, the study that the two of you are famous for, published in Lancet, 2009. The article, Identification of Children at Very Low Risk of Clinically Important Brain Injuries After Head Trauma, a Prospective Cohort Study. Pete, give us a brief summary. What did that study show and how has it impacted care? Well, I'd love, Nate, to follow up on, on my words, but you know the way I, the way I look at the summary of the PCARN rule is you start with a group of patients who for whom you know you don't need or for patients who are not the kids who you know absolutely must have a head have a head CT. Now you have a group of kids who should they or shouldn't they? And I would say the rule t- took a huge step in taking kind of this um, spectrum of patients and making it clear like here's this group of patients who just don't need to have a CT done. And then it has a group that is higher risk. You say probably should. And then there's an intermediate risk group. So, you know, the rule itself, which Nate can add on is, you know, there's this very low risk group and that's a large population, but there are other populations within there. Great. Nate? 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, Peter summarized it nicely. I think the kind of the way I think about the PCARN rule is we're just trying to identify the low-hanging fruit. Children who have been getting CTs all over the place, but they don't need to get CTs. So the purpose of the uh, rule was really to identify a large cohort of children who don't need CTs. The others we risk stratify. It doesn't mean they do need CTs, but we provide the risk estimate of those that do, but identify a huge percentage that just don't. And, and we're going to get into the nitty gritty. Again, presentation, some of the signs and symptoms. Nate, how many head CTs do you think this study has prevented? Well, well, that is a really interesting question, Bob. You know, the study was published in 2009, and the national baseline rate of CTs at that time varied anywhere between 30 to 50%, depending on whether you're at a children's hospital or a general community hospital. And what I can say is this, is that at centers that have implemented the evidence, I'm sure we have saved scores of thousands of CT scans. For centers that haven't done active, active implementation, there has been some diffusion and decreased CTs, but not as many as those centers, which there are many that are actively implementing the rule. Great. And both of you said the study identifies low-risk patients who don't need CAT scans. Now, obviously, you've done a lot of subgroup analysis. Like you said, you've published dozens and dozens of follow-up articles to the Lancet article in 2009. Let me ask, uh, we'll start with Pete. Pete, can we do better? Is there some form of modified PCARN rules that we may be seeing in the near future based on your research? I think the low risk group is really strong. Like I, I, I really, I would be surprised if there's a better way to identify a low risk group easily. There are groups out there, I'm sure, who are trying to do machine learning and trying to understand if there are better ways to come up with kind of a learning system that tells you these patients, you're, you're learning as you go, and there are other patients who are low risk. I, I don't think that's coming any time in the near future, to tell you the truth. Great. Nate, anything to add to that? Yeah, let me let me just add a couple of things is that, you know, as you know, Bob, the main uh, the main article was to identify those patients that don't need CT scans. But then we did, I think, six really important articles. And Peter wrote uh, several of these that looking at children who just have one intermediate risk factor. And and as a group, I won't speak about them in all individually because there was like six of them. And most recently, Bob, you might know that we just published the last one for children with an isolated GCS of 14. But if you take all of these uh, patients who have an isolated intermediate risk factor, their risk of a clinically important brain injury is around one in a few hundred, as opposed to the low risk group who don't have any PCARN risk factors that are one in three to 5,000. But that one in few hundred is important because that's a group that if you observe for a period of time, then you probably get them down to the one in a couple of thousand risk group, and they can be discharged without CT. Uh, the last, I just the last thing I want to add, um, and uh, in terms of where we might be going to help, there have been articles looking at skull ultrasound. You know, Peter actually was the first author on a paper that we did looking at scalp hematomas. As you know, Bob, for the younger group, under the, younger than two, a non-frontal scalp hematoma is a PCARN risk factor. Uh, but now we've shown that the, a skull ultrasound can identify those who, who have skull fractures. And it's really the ones that skull fractures that are at greatest risk to have bleeds underneath. So that if you augment a child with a scalp hematoma with a skull ultrasound that's negative, 
you're further reassured that um, they can be probably observed and discharged without CT scan. Excellent. And the more uh, and more use of POCUS in the ED uh, right. is a good bedside approach to, to be able to determine that. This is a question. I'm glad you guys are in front of me now. All right. Your outcome measure in the initial study was clinically important traumatic brain injuries. Now, there's a very small number of patients who require neurosurgery. And again, I would love to hear the histories and physicals of those patients to make sure I didn't miss them. But my question to you is, what if we miss one of these clinically important traumatic brain injuries who don't need neurosurgery? Okay. Are there any short-term or long-term sequelae, morbidity associated with potentially missing these patients? Pete, what are your thoughts? Wow. It's a little bit outside of the, my, uh, my domain of knowledge. I'll tell you, the kids who have, let's say, small cerebral contusions, I don't think there's any short or long-term difference in those patients. Do I know that for sure? I don't. The kids, let's say, who have extra axial hematomas, who have subdurals and have epidurals, they're not getting drained because they're not going to neurosurgery. Is there a different outcome, a short, long term? Again, I, I don't know the absolute answer. My feeling acutely in the acute setting is no. The long term part, I don't. I really don't know the answer to that. Bob, can I just add on uh, to what Peter said? Is that you know one really important the power of this study in my mind is, you know, we enrolled in the main study, as you know, we enrolled more than 42,000 children and we did not miss one child that required neurosurgery. And of course we followed up on everybody since then. And I think I can tell you this on the podcast because this was presented at just the past PAS and SAM. We had a subsequent study funded by the NIH. We enrolled 20,000 patients not in PCARN. It's a, a further validation. And the purpose actually was to validate an abdominal CT rule that we did in PCARN, but we also validated the head rule again. And with another 20,000 patients, we didn't miss one patient who required neurosurgery. So, you, can, you know, we're very reassured that we're not missing patients that require neurosurgery. Now, the issue of a, a child with a, a minor finding on CT there's no intervention for that patient. It's really, if they actually have signs of concussion or whatnot, then of course they should be followed in concussion clinics and whatnot. But an isolated finding on CT that doesn't get operated on, there is no other intervention. And we don't use prophylactic anticonvulsants. There's no medication that prevents that from becoming a nidus for a future seizure disorder. So um, we are kind of reassured given all those data. Uh, I don't want to mitigate, Nate and Pete, the work that you've done in all the follow-up studies. But let me ask you a question. This prediction rule that came out of PCART, is it any better than clinical judgment? Nate, why don't you take that? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a really uh, great question, Bob. And it's, it's a great question for any clinical prediction rule. That is, a clinical prediction rule is only important if it does better than what clinical judgment does. So um, as we've always done in our clinical prediction rules, we we compared and we we've published the the result. And actually, on that subsequent validation that I told you about that we just finished, we presented that result uh, as well, and it shows the same thing. When you look at the sensitivity of picking up children with clinically important brain injuries, it does better, and it's important because when we're talking about clinically important brain injuries, as you mentioned, Bob, these are injuries that require intubation, neurosurgery, death. You just can't, you're not allowed to miss these patients. And the sensitivity of our rule is better than clinician judgment. That is, and, and we judge this based on, we ask the clinician if there's suspicion for a clinically important brain injury, 
was less than 1%, 1 to 5, 5 to 10, 10 to 50, or more than 50. And based on a clinician saying that the risk was less than 1%, the prediction rule was much more sensitive on an order of originally become like in the high 90s versus 60% in the original study. And in this subsequent study that we just finished, in the, it was actually 100% versus 80%. Now, the world is not perfect. It comes at a cost. The cost is that a substantial loss of specificity. So that means that you know we're doing more CTs than if clinical, just by clinical judgment alone. But if the price is missing children with a head injury that needs surgery, then you're willing to do a lot more CT scans. And in our uh, comparison that we've published, um, there were three patients that were considered less than 1% risk uh, to have a clinically important brain injury by clinician judgment, but were all identified by the prediction rule who had neurosurgery. So um, so it is a trade-off, sensitivity versus specificity, but when the outcome is as important as this one, you're willing to sacrifice a fair amount of specificity for a higher sensitivity. Excellent point, excellent point, Nate, thank you. What are the groups of children that both emergency medicine and pediatric emergency medicine doctors struggle with is the young child. Okay, so how applicable, Pete, why don't you start, are these rules to, and I know you have studied this, to the child less than three months of age? So, yeah, we, we and I, I just want to mention that Zaina Abid at Columbia was the lead author, and uh, Daniel Tancredi at UCSF was really a, a main um, author. UC Davis, as well. by the way, not UCSF, though. That was um, UC Davis. UC Davis. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we looked at this subset because we I think we kept getting asked, what's going on in these younger three, in these, these kids younger than three months of age? Um, do the rules actually hold in this subset of patients? So actually, when you when we looked at the data in these in this youngest group of patients, the PCARN rule actually works extraordinarily well. And that was, again, it's less than three months. And we broke it up into kids who were younger than one month, uh, one to two months, and two to three months. And, and the rule actually works very well for identifying those who are um, at risk for clinically important TBI. Now, does that mean that they're not at, once they don't meet the risk, Bob, of, of being at low risk for TBI and they have, they have a PCARN finding, they are at substantial risk. And those are the kids who you, sh I'm not going to say should be CTing, but boy, you should be really carefully looking at them. Uh, I believe it was around four, 4% 4 of the children younger than three months who did not meet the low risk criteria had clinically important TBI, and it was relatively the same across the one-month, two-month, and three-month age groups. Then if you actually look at the, if you want to look at the CT findings on the children, the, the kids who are not low risk based on the PCARN rule, there's about a 20% risk of TBI on CT with some substantial findings across, again, these three age groups. Again, these are the kids who did not meet the low-risk group. And those who meet the low risk criteria, and then you actually look at them even more wholly and say, okay, they don't meet low risk, but I'm a little, still a little bit nervous. You take out look the kids who have actually have no other findings on clinical exam, and the risk of clinically important TBI is near zero. So I, I think the rule holds. I think if you're looking to make it even more strict, because these kids are, are seemingly at a little bit higher risk of TBI and CT, then you look at what the other findings are that they have, um, and if they have very, if they have nothing else, those kids are at very low risk of having important findings. I think that's a, an awesome assessment, Pete. That, that the rule is applicable to these young infants, 
to siphon out those low-risk kids who don't need imaging. But if they don't meet low-risk criteria, they're young. You better sort of take a close, close look and maybe image more than not image. Yeah, and it's, it was really interesting, Bob. I don't know if you want one more. The you know it was the group. I think I think Nate. It was the highest group across all age groups that got CT. Like people are people are frightened of these kids. You know, I think these data suggest that there's a good reason to be a little bit frightened. There there's a good there are ways to risk stratify using the PCAR rule, but it's okay to be a little bit frightened. And can I add just one thing to that, uh, Bob and Peter? Totally agree. Yeah, Peter summarized it super well. And my added uh, recommendation would be, yes, the, the rule worked on these younger than three-month-olds, but there still were some interesting findings on CT. So what I tend to do in that, you know, if it's an older child who's PCARN rule uh, negative, I mean, we just we let them go, right? And without that much observation, if they have no PCARN findings, for the first three months of life, if they have, you know, a non-significant mechanism of injury and they uh, and they're PCAR negative, I don't let them go that quickly. Even if they're PCAR negative, for the reasons Peter mentioned, we might even keep them overnight or we observe them for several hours in the ED. We're trying not to image them because, of course, they're the ones at most risk for radiation-induced cancers and whatnot. So we're just a little, but we're a little bit more cautious with them. So this is building on what Nate was saying earlier about the use of POCUS. I think it's in this youngest group, these younger, youngest patients, where that risk stratification using POCUS may be the most important. We're not there yet. Like we clearly, if you can see a skull fracture, boy, it increases your risk. I think it's actually the opposite too. It's if you don't see a skull fracture in these kids who generally are low risk, but we're still worried about them, it probably puts them down at a lower risk category as well. So those are the ones with hematomas. You do a POCUS, no skull fracture. You could sort of push the hematoma aside and say, probably low risk. All right, let's talk about the actual CAT scan itself. Uh, Nate, you alluded to it, some ionizing radiation. Obviously, our radiology colleagues are minimizing the amount of radiation. And you also mentioned it's the youngest children who are at the highest risk for this latent or radiation-induced malignancies. Talk about how you balance the two. I guess you alluded to the fact, Nate, you know, instead of performing a CT on some of these children, you may want to hospitalize them or put them in your observation unit for eight to 12 hours. With hospital censuses the way they are right now, Nate, uh, you, you still want to do that or you want to observe yeah. them in the ED? <laughs> yeah, good question, Bob. So this is kind of my thoughts about that. And of course, things have progressed with time. So, you know, for a number of years, pediatric radiologists have been following the what's called the ELARA principle of as as low as reasonably achievable in the amount of radiation to image the child. So we, we, we do that, but uh, nonetheless, there's a risk. And actually, one thing that readers probably and your listeners probably don't realize, but when Peter and I and others, when we analyze these data using, we use classification regression trees, you can assign a cost to false negatives and false positives. And what we're balancing, we, want, we don't want a missed injury but we don't want to overly CT patients who don't have CT scans. And you can assign costs uh, to those different outcomes. So with the notion that for a, a young child, uh, younger than one, one current generation CT is probably uh, could, will cause cancer in one in a thousand of the very youngest ones, that was kind of the cost assignment. And that's when we came up with these rules um, as, uh, as they were derived. So those were the cost trade-offs. Having said that, if a child needs a CT scan, I don't think about it. I just do it because the risk that we're talking about really uh, is for a current generation helical CT scan, 
causing a, a malignancy for a five-year-old, it's one in 2,500 ballpark. Uh, for a 10-year-old, it's probably one in 5,000. So from a population point of view, it's important. Think about this. We CT children, about six to 10 million children a year for all reasons in the United States. If we used evidence on which ones did not CT, I'm sure we could cut out a million of those CTs or, or use alternate uh, imaging. We're talking about a lot of malignancies, but for any one patient, it's the risk is pretty low. So to your point, Bob, crowded ED, and I have a choice between observing and CTing, I'm going to CT. The other time that I'll do it, it's a mid, patient comes in at midnight and they have one PCARN risk factor. I need to observe that if I'm not going to image, I observe and that's my, my go-to method. But if it's midnight and I'm going to observe for three or four hours, I don't send people home at 4 a.m. You don't do that because parents go to sleep and there's no one to observe the child. So I'll probably CT at that time, as opposed to 10 in the morning where everyone's going to be awake and following. So there's lots of different factors. Radiation is one factor. It's an important one from a population point of view, but not for any one individual. Excellent. Pete, if you do a, a CT and it comes back normal, can you use that as a triage tool? Can they be discharged from the ED? Assuming again, no other uh, injuries uh, to worry about. Yeah, the, the, ri the risk of progression of illness once your CT is negative, is that what you asked, Bob, when their CT is negative, is, Correct, so, yep. ex is so extraordinarily low that, uh, again, they have to not be so symptomatic that there's something I have to watch them for or they need IV fluids. You know, that that's a different cir circumstance. But in the kids who, who's otherwise um, ready to go home and their CT is negative, they get to go home. The, um, you know, the, the studies Nate has done with Jim Holmes um, looking at skull fractures and the risk of having a, even if you have a skull fracture, what's the likelihood of having a progression to something that's important that you're going to do something about is very, very low. So again, you're, the first circumstances, they don't, they don't have a skull fracture. Their CT is negative. Those patients, when they're well, they get to go. Those who have skull fractures, um, Nate, you can follow up on this thought, but you know, those kids also, once their CT is negative for blood, their likelihood of progressing um, is also extraordinarily low. Yeah, let me comment on both. Thanks, Peter. Um, so two important sub-studies from the PCARN uh, rule. One, as Peter was alluding to, that was published by Jim Holmes. We studied patients who had a negative CT, and there were, whatever, 25,000. I mean, don't quote me on that number, It's but I think probably 20,000-ish 20, negative CTs. And if you, had, you discharge a child with a negative CT and a normal mental status, zero out of those 20,000 had returned to the ED for any, you know, any important brain injury. So you can be very confident on that. And the second point that Peter was uh, alluding to, uh, another study published by, uh, written by Elizabeth Powell from Chicago, we looked at the hundreds of children with linear skull fractures and otherwise CT negative, not one of them required any intervention. So those are also patients. I would probably watch them for a bit because they do have a skull fracture. Uh, but again, if that's all they have, their risk of, of developing a intracranial hem hemorrhage is extremely, extremely low. They can go home after a period of observation. Excellent. Excellent interpretation, again, of your study, with the, which included over 40,000 patients. Let's talk about the other arm uh, of the study. So you're not going to CT these patients. You're going to observe them. Okay. And again, I scratch my head constantly with this. How long <laughs> do you observe them? And is it a one size fits all? 
And I'll sort of give you an analogy. When I see a patient who has a, quote, allergic reaction, you know, they may have gotten an EpiPen in the field, they may have not, you know, the, the one size fits all, observe for four to six hours. I usually observe them the longer, I observe them longer if their presentation is worrisome. So my question to you, is that, let's, let's start with Pete. Is there a one size fits all, Pete, or do you need to observe for four hours after the head trauma has occurred? So I don't think there's one size fits all. I think the first most important thing you said is that there is an observation period. I have not seen where everybody, we've standardized observation two hours or four hours or six hours, and you know at that point everybody is able to go. So I do not think it's it's one size fits all. Nate, this is led by Lees, right? Lees Nigrovic at Boston Children's wrote, wrote a manuscript on the observation period in the PCARN cohort. And there wasn't a set time period. You know, they, these were these were kids who were they observed in the ED. And what we found was that kids who were observed in the ED, so they, they were they came in, they needed observation period per the attending, and they were watched for a period of time without a CT. What happened? Well, what happens is that you actually use that observation and you're, you become more clinically sure of the direction you want to go. And that there was a decrease in CTs or, or in those kids who were observed, there were a lot of kids who were observed who were then sent home and did just fine. Obviously, there's still a proportion of those kids, again, different time periods, where the clinician then said, you know, they keep having continued symptoms, whatever it be. Their headache doesn't go away. They're, they're vomiting. They just don't look right to the, and they CT'd those patients. And again, that seemed to be a very straight, safe strategy. Yeah, so I'll, I'll uh, just add on to that and comment on a uh, another article, which is not a PCARN article, but really important to address this issue of the duration. So as Peter said, you know, Lee's uh, Nigerich wrote this article about observation. And what we found basically is that there was a cohort and we documented on the case report form. We ideally, it would have been great if we could tell you what the perfect observation time, but this is part of the logistics of research that I'd love your listeners to know is that we need people to complete the case report form and pop it in the lockbox. If they held on to it to document how long they observed the patient, we would lose all these case report forms. So unfortunately, we did not we did not have the documentation for how long they observed. So and that was purely a research logistic issue. But having said that, with Lisa's study, what we found is uh, we did document if clinicians followed a strategy to observe before the decision-making about CT, and that was documented. And we asked them to say what they observed for. And for clinicians that followed that strategy versus those that made the immediate decision to CT or discharge, we looked at outcomes and CT rates. And in the analysis, after matching them for severity, for the PCARN factors, et cetera, we found that clinicians, that, that is patients who had the strategy followed of observation before the decision to CT, they got CT'd half as many, point, odds ratio of 0.5 with no difference in outcomes. So that was really important. But but to the exact, it's the billion dollar question, Bob, that you ask, how long do you observe? I refer people to an article that the senior author was David Johnson, one of our PZM colleagues in uh, the PERC network, the Canadian Research Network. And this was a database study of, I think it was near 20,000 children. It was retrospective from a registry, but looked at children with minor head trauma. They wanted to ask, the, they asked the question is this, was there anybody discharged in this registry after minor head trauma with a normal GCS? What was the time period of observation beyond which no child came back requiring neurosurgery, et cetera, et cetera? 
And they found that at six hours, after six hours, and that time zero being the time of injury, not the time of presentation to the ED, it was, I mean, extremely rare. No one returned and died. I think there was one or two who came back and required neurosurgery. But six hours, in my mind, identified by David Johnson and all, that, in my mind, is the upper limits from time for injury. So back to your original kind of proposition, Bob, if I have a child with one, like if they have zero PCARN risk factors and they're not like, you know, an infant like Peter was talking about, I barely watch them at all. Their risk is extremely low. If they have that one intermediate risk factor, LOC, headache, whatever, I watch them. The longest I'll watch them is six hours because David Johnson's article said after six hours and the normal mental status, nobody comes back uh, and decompensates. Okay. So during that two hour, four hour, six hour period, okay, they have minimal symptoms. They are low risk. An hour or so into their observation, you get called in the room, the patient vomited. Now, again, the rest of your ER could be full of kids with gastroenteritis, okay? But that patient happened to vomit. So, again, Pete, I think you alluded to it. You look at the whole picture, but, you know, you're going to send the patient home with instructions if they vomit to return, things like that. So, if they vomit once in the ED, you reassess them or you just order the CAT scan? So, the kids... so. I'm going to start off with asking you a question. Are they starting off with symptoms already? Like, are you observing them because they have certain particular symptoms? Minimal symptoms. You've already triaged them. They are low risk as per PCARN, and you're going to observe them for a short period of time. They did not vomit before they came in, but they vomit during that observation period. So so first, if they're low risk, they're probably not spending a lot of time to to vomit in the ER. But let's just say that they, they have some symptom that bothered me. If they have vomiting in the ER, they're not getting sent home immediately. That's for sure. If they're still running around the room and I give myself a good reason why they have that vomiting, I will watch them further. If that vomiting persists or other things bother me, they are going to get a CAT scan. And I'm going to um, – this is actually the fun part where, you know, Peter and I, as you as you know, Bob – Peter, I not only are you know collaborators for the last two decades, we're great friends as well. So the friendly banter is good. I'm going to make it easier for your listeners. You're observing a kid, they vomit, just get the scan. Because you're going to send them home to say, if they vomit, come back for reassessment. It's like they vomited already. I, so Peter is probably saving more radiation than I am. But I'm going to tell you, if I'm watching a kid, and they, I don't care if they, I'm watching for uh, one pecan risk factor I wouldn't be watching them for no PCARN risk factors because they would already be home. I don't observe kids with no PCARN risk factors. So if I'm watching them because of a PCARN risk factor and they vomit, off to the scanner they go. All right. I'm, I'm going to break the tie. Uh, I uh, vote for Peter. Uh, and Peter, that's that. That's probably why Nate gets higher press gainy patient satisfaction scores than, than you and I, Pete. Uh, so of this of the factors that are in the P card rule that are not like the you know the altered mental status skull fracture it's funny vomiting is the one that bothers me the most like headache doesn't bother me as much as a scalp hematoma so like I get where Nate's coming from like of all the factors <laughs> you're going to ask about vomiting is the one that's actually really hard because it's actually the one I care about the most right all right so we observe them for a period of time like like you mentioned and then we send them home. And a common question, no matter what time of day, especially in the evening in the ER, is should I wake them up before <laughs> I, as the parent, go to sleep? And, you know, usually I, I, I'm pretty serious in the ER, but sometimes I'm flippant. And I said, I've, I've never sent a patient home with their parents who is unable to be awakened in the middle of the night. 
Uh, Nate, uh, I'm sure you're much more polished. What do you tell these parents? Should yeah. they wake them up? You know, yeah. let's say the child goes to sleep at seven. They're going to sleep at 11. Should they wake them up before they go to sleep? Right. Great, great, uh, great question, because that's what I ask all the time. So this is my answer, and it, and it was already kind of implied by some of my earlier answers. If I'm watching a child, because first of all, if they have no pecan risk factors, I'm going to tell them, do not wake them up. They have no pecan risk factors. They're safe to go. I mean, and and just return if they have you know symptoms that we always give, of course, the uh, the symptoms to watch for. If they had a pecan risk factor, I will have done that observation in the ED, um, and I'm going to watch them for. Uh, uh, and like I said, I don't discharge kids in the middle of the night for that reason. If they're in the middle of their observation period, so pretty much, every, and of course, if they've already had a CT scan, then you can definitely not wake them up. So. My answer is almost always, no, 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 don't wake them up, let them sleep, because I've either already done the observation in the ED, or they have no pecan risk factors, and their risks are infinitesimal, or they've already had a CT scan, and I know they're not going to worsen. So in any of those cases, I'll let them sleep. Great. And I'm sure, Pete, you tell them to wake them up, right? <laughs> oh, every 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Here's another issue that uh, I'm always perplexed by. And more and more, we're seeing this in pediatric emergency medicine, not only in the practice of pediatric emergency medicine, but also in the studies. And that is the caveat of shared decision-making. So Pete, you run the patient through your PCARN rules. You come up, and I'll even give you this, because, I, but I know you've done translational research showing you could pinpoint exactly the percent likelihood that they will have a clinically important traumatic brain injury. Do you have the families contribute to that discussion of A, observation, or CAT scan? So uh, I have, can say that I have not studied shared decision-making. This is really uh, Nate and Eric Hess's domain. So if you want me to just say, would I versus wouldn't I, without telling you that you know what the data are, I can tell you, you're saying, Bob, that I can pinpoint the risk in this patient and I think it's not, you know, the kid who's very, very low risk. Is that what you're saying? Kind of is in a, sure. is in a middle risk? Right. So I think I, I, I think I've shared decision-making this way. If I'm very convinced that this patient doesn't need a CT scan, let's just say they're a, a child with a one-and-a-half-year-old child who looks great and has a, has a small temporoparietal scalp hematoma. They're probably, you know, it's an intermediate risk group. Do I really want to be asking the parent to help me in that decision? I don't. I really want to tell them what I think should be done. So I don't think that really is shared decision-making. It's really that's where you're involving the parent. So I think for certain types of patients, the answer for intermediate risk type of patients is no. I, I actually say, I don't want you to get a CT. Here's what I think should happen. Then there are really those that are in between. And some of those, figuring out what those caveats are and who is that patient who I think the parent will help me make that decision, I, I think is the, the biggest trick, like who to pick. Nate, I'm sure you have an opinion on that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the other thing, we talk about bias. And, and I think like Pete just said, how you speak to the parent, okay, you have your own bias, whether you are for or against CAT scans. So Nate, how, how do you approach that at the bedside? Yeah. So let me tell you uh, uh, what I do. And this is now based on a big trial. So as Peter alluded to, I did a study with Eric Hess. Eric Hess is a general emergency physician, good friend and colleague, who is probably the leader in emergency medicine around shared decision-making in the setting 
of the emergency department. And we did, uh, we got a grant from PCORI and did a randomized trial of a thousand children who had one PCARN risk factor. And before I even talk about that, I'll just quickly summarize is it's true for a lot of medicine and it's certainly true for minor head trauma. About 70% of the patients, I know exactly what I'm gonna do because Peter and I, you know, in the rule that we created, in both the younger than two and older than two, about 55% of children have no PCARN risk factors. I don't do shared decision-making. They don't get a CT scan. There's, of course, always caveats, suspicion of child abuse, et cetera, et cetera, but 55%, no CT. Then there's another 15% or so that are high risk. That is, they have two of the PCARN factors are higher risk factors that we just didn't discuss. But one is a palpable skull fracture. Uh, that's a child that's higher risk. And the other is a child who has altered mental status because we allowed patients with GCS 14 and 15 and minor signs of altered mental status. Those, those patients typically need a CT scan because their risk of a clinically important brain injury is one in 25. So it, what it leaves is about 30% in both age groups that you have one of the intermediate risk factors. So that's the group we did this randomized trial funded by PCORI, and this is what we found. And, and the intervention was you were randomized to a shared decision-making instrument that we, you know, a really nice pictographs that we talked about the pros, cons, versus just your routine care. And for the children that were randomized to shared decision-making, their CT rate was a little bit less, not statistically, it was 21 versus 23%, but not statistically different. But the important factors that were highly significantly different between the groups was that trust in the physician, feeling like you're engaged, use of healthcare resources in the following week, all highly significantly favored shared decision-making. And the last thing I'll say, that shared decision-making intervention took five minutes. That's what it was, sitting looking at pictographs. So I'm a big believer, not in the low-risk patients and not in the high-risk patients. In that 30% in figure three of Lancet, that is you know, one PCARN risk factor, that's when I am a big believer in doing it. Nate, let me follow that up with a sort of a touchy question. Medical legal ramifications of you know doing that, documenting that in the chart, have you experienced it yourself or, or your colleagues as far as how you get away with that in the courtroom or, or in a deposition? Yeah, uh, good question, Bob. I think that that question is raised a lot. But I'll tell you, the reason we do shared decision-making, it's not about risk mitigation. It's about doing patient-centered care and incorporating the values of the parents in our decision-making. And remember, this is just a group of patients that it would be pretty standard to observe anyway, because they just have one PCARN risk factor. And by the way, in that shared decision-making of CT or not, if they say no CT, it doesn't mean that I kick them out the door. I still do that six hours or four hours of, of observation, depending on which risk. So in my mind, it actually, it doesn't de increase the CT rate, maybe a little bit decreases, although not significantly so. And you're doing the same thing you would do anyway. That is, if they decide no CT, you're still doing that same amount of observation that you do otherwise, but you're showing respect for the patients and the, I mean, the parents' values, and it reflects in our outcome measures of trust in the physician, in feeling of engagement, et cetera. I think those are all important points, Nate. Both of you said since 2009, since the Lancet study, you've published dozens of studies, subsets of these groups. 
Let's talk about the future. Are, are we done with head trauma? Are, are we done with the PCARN? We're not. We're obviously we're not going to duplicate a study of this size over forty thousand patients again. So, are there future subsets of patients? Any other things that we could learn from this large cohort of patients? Pete, you want to take that first? You mean from from this data set or subsequent? Either from studies? this data set or just head injuries in general. As two of the leading authors of of the landmark study, what is the future of head injury research going forward? I think you touched on it before. One of the things I would like to see is how to take patients for whom who are in that middle risk group and to risk stratify them further. What tools are we going to have? Uh, what biomarkers are we going to have? What new imaging studies that don't involve radiation are we going to have that actually helps risk stratify that in-between risk group further? I think that's where this is going to go. You know, we, we've actually, I've discussed with others studies that to randomize patients to get or to not get POCUS. And can you, will, will that help for certain subgroups of patients, for instance, those youngest ones? I think that's where we're going to go next when it comes to the diagnostic end. Nate, you get the last word. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I have two thoughts on that. One, I agree with Peter. First of all, the low-risk patients by PCARN, I think we're done. I mean, it's a low-risk group. It's 55% of the patients. No blood testing, no nothing, just history and physical. We're good. Same with in the high-risk group and in that intermediate risk. When I say high, nobody in PCARN is super high. They all have minor head trauma, right? But I agree with Peter. There, there could be biomarkers that could help us. But we have to remember that anytime you do a lab test, there's false positive, false negative. You're sticking the kid, which we don't do in the PCARN. So there's that trade-off. But I do think that biomarkers might help. And the one other thing I just want to add, Bob, back to AI. So there have been two studies using artificial intelligence with PCARN data. And again, as I just mentioned, we just validated the PCARN rules for the uh, listeners to know, validated 100% sensitivity, just the same as the main rule. It was not a surprise. It was a really big study and others have validated. But the issue about AI, what AI can do, it doesn't typically increase sensitivity, but it can increase specificity. So there was an AI article uh, published from our data set by a group. It was a kind of a very, comp you know, AI is complicated because the variables used are not necessarily intuitive to the clinician and it's really black box stuff. And they found, though, that their AI algorithm increased the specificity, although I've, it's, I haven't seen it applied. And uh, unfortunately, I also did an AI thing with uh, Stephen Aronoff. You might know, Bob, because he's in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Right. A temple, exactly. So Steve Aronoff approached, uh, approached me uh, that he wanted to do an AI thing. So we did an AI project on the PCON data set. And you know what? We found that AI didn't improve on the rule. So AI is complicated because AI is not just one thing. It depends on what algorithm you're using, et cetera, and it's very complicated. I think AI is really good when you have millions of data points and there are nonlinear associations, but for things like a data set of, of several thousand, routine statistics are pretty good. Awesome. On behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, I want to thank both uh, you, Nate, and Pete for your expertise. I think I really get a kick out of talking to speakers who are authors of the PCARN rules, because the rules are the rules, but to really dig deep, sort of roll up your sleeves and talk about them in a little more depth, I think not only educates the three of us, but also our audience in how they apply those rules, that they are doing the right thing, and some of the different points that you made, the use of POCUS, high risk versus intermediate risk, shared decision-making, et cetera. So again, on behalf of the podcast team, I want to thank both of you. Thanks, Bob. It's fun to be uh, on with you. That was fun. 